Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of July 24th, 2019. I'm Charles Hain, tech writer for No Film School. I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. And we're here and we're going to be talking about a little bit of drama surrounding Once Upon a Time in Hollywood coming out this weekend. We're going to be talking about drama surrounding Cats, which, who cares when it comes out? None of us are going to go see it because we're terrified by the trailer. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about some drama. It's it's a triple drama re- week. A little bit of drama surrounding Sony's new camera. The, all We've got all that and tech news this week on the No Film School podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by Shotlister, the only professional shot listing and scheduling app. Go to www.shotlister.com to learn more. All right, everybody. So the top story this week is the Cats trailer. Yeah. If you haven't seen the Cats trailer, (laughs) you guys need to go watch the Cats trailer. This has been a real... So there's a lot of forces that combine to make this the top filmmaking story of the week. There are many... Like, 20 years ago, when something truly, horrifically terrible came out, a couple of people could write a bad review of it in a newspaper, and then it sort of died. But now we have both, like, a very vocal internet community of film fans who can respond in real time to things, and we have the technology to make truly horrific filmmaking decisions. And the combination (laughs) of those two things, like, the ability to make something terrifying... In the wrong way, in the non-deliberately terrifying way, and the ability of Twitter to react to it in real time has created the cat stories this week. If you've managed to miss it, it's because you don't watch a lot of filmmaking blogs or have a filmmaking Twitter. They released a trailer for Cats, the musical. And unlike Disney, which is remaking a lot of their animated musicals into these live action musicals, and they're doing it in like a photorealistic way. Like you watch the new Lion King trailer... And you don't quite understand why they did it, because it's like the original animated Lion King is great. But like, whatever. I love Donald Glover. Beyonce's great. I'm sure it'll be fun. And it's like photorealistic. It's not like half lion, half human hybrids. It's a fucking lion. Cats, based on the Broadway musical, (laughs) in which any character from the audience can get up and just create a new character. They decided to make a musical movie of it, but it's these fucking weird human-cat hybrids that just sit right in the uncanny valley, making you deeply, cripplingly uncomfortable to look at them. We have a post up on the site about it, um, and and I actually wrote it, which I don't often write or make time to write posts, but when something like happens about Cats the Musical, I'm, I'm all about it. Um, that's a joke. I'm not actually a big Cats the Musical fan. I've actually never seen the musical Cats, but the reason I wrote the post was that we did a most anticipated movies of 2019 back in January for No Film School, and I picked among mine, when I saw the list of movies coming out, I picked Cats because I thought, this is going to be weird. I just knew because I'm familiar with what Cats is. It's a really strange musical to begin with, um, anyone who is alive in the 80s, is, especially if they were in the tri-state area at any point, is very aware of Cats. And uh, it's like it broke all these records on Broadway. It ran forever. It's based on a super weird poem by T.S. Eliot, of all things, about cats that are kind of... It, it's Everything about it is weird. Read the Wikipedia entry. It was weird before it was this trailer. So the show itself, it's people dressed up as cats, which is kind of silly and kind of weird and like prancing around on the stage. 
the musical, the movie musical takes that in a whole new extreme direction where it kind of like, how do you even describe what it is like for someone who hasn't watched it? I think there's a couple <laughs> things we should we should really talk about that are particularly relevant to filmmakers in this conversation. And one thing is making artistic tonal decisions about uh, realism versus expressionism. And then another thing is the uncanny valley. So the uncanny valley, if you haven't heard this term before, you can read great articles about it online. 30 Rock summed it up best as the difference between, you know, like C-3PO, which is like humanoid, but different from us enough that it, it still feels human. Or like creepy characters like the Polar Express that are almost human. Um, but the big thing that happens with the Uncanny Valley is we look at cartoonish characters, highly expressive characters, and we emotionally relate to them. So I watched the Muppet Babies cartoon. I don't know why I picked that as an example, but <laughs> whatever. Muppet Babies was great. I really hope there's nothing problematic in Muppet Babies. But I watched the Muppet Babies cartoon from the 80s, and I emotionally connect and relate to those characters because they are abstracted from humanity. There's a mouth and there's eyes, but it doesn't look too close to a person. But there's something weird that seems to happen where the closer you get it to looking like a person, the more we recoil if it's not actually a person. And the theory is, and we don't actually have like... You know, people are testing this in robotics to try and figure out what it is. But the theory is, is like with a clearly animated character, like we're not evaluating it. We're not suspicious of fraud, like at a deep instinctual fundamental level. So we're not looking for like weird micro expressions. We're not counting blinks. We're not like looking at all that stuff. It's just like, oh, that's a cartoon. We relate to it. As it gets closer and closer to looking photo real, Something kicks in in our instincts where, like, all the bells go off of, like, that's not right. Like, the proportions are wrong and it's fraudulent because, you know, in a, in a like, evolutionary fashion, uh, we're, we're suspicious of the thing that looks almost right but isn't. There's, there's a lie there and we know there's a lie there and mm. it weirds us out. And great, great example that just came to mind as you said that is the, um, the movie The Island of Dr. Moreau is about a guy who creates animal human hybrids and they design they make them fit into the uncanny valley to make it scary and these cat creatures in the cats trailer movie look a lot like those that were designed to be scary like a cross an unnatural cross between human and animal that shouldn't exist um that yeah it uh there's a great book called understanding comics by oh, scott mcleod yes that book's are you familiar great. with that one? Oh, i love that yes book. it's it's a great book for filmmakers, for artists, for anybody. And uh, one of the great things that it that I learned from it when I first read it was that we can really connect to a happy face and we can really connect to Mickey Mouse. But then as things get more specific in the art, it gets a little bit like we get further away from relating to it on the basic primal level, like yeah. the more detailed the artwork gets. And I think what you're talking about is something similar is the more specific and natural it gets, but not human. If yeah. that makes sense. Um, the, the other fascinating thing though that you brought up is that how this compares and contrasts to the photo real Lion King thing, which they're calling not animation, but it, is animation right yeah it's still not anyway that's a whole other thing but we what we exist in a weird time as you said where we can do some really crazy stuff and make it look real and uh and we also live in a time where everybody can immediately react and the headlines 
uh, it wasn't just Twitter. The whole news world went crazy after seeing this thing. But the interesting thing for me is also like, Cat, I've not seen it on the stage. It seems ridiculous. The costumes look nuts. But it's been a huge <laughs> hit. And the reason I think it's been a huge hit is because in the theatrical space, being super expressive, having the makeup look crazy, the costumes look crazy, like self-consciously, there was never a moment in which anyone was thinking these are anything other than performers in ridiculous cat outfits. But in a theatrical environment, that works. And you can do that cinematically. If you watch, like, Kurosawa's Ron, there are amazingly, like, cinema, like theatrical performances and theatrical makeup. And, like, there, there are numerous examples in the history of cinema where you can be more expressive and theatrical and it can work. I think the decision Cats totally. made is instead of <laughs> leaning into the full photo reel like a Lion King or leaning into like a full theatrical like Ron, they went for this weird Dr. Moreau choice that yeah. I, they must've tested the shit out of it. They must've cause it's, they spent so much money, but like it just clearly made people deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. A lot of people, all people you might say, I think you make a great point. It's not actually this. It's a great companion point to what we cover in the article um, that there are there was a choice made that really could have gone in a different direction and would have been just fine. Um, The the theatrical thing, you know what I thought of when you when you talked about the theatrical, what looks theatrical in cinema is stuff like German expressionism. Oh, yeah. Like that heavy makeup or Nosferatu or yeah. um, Captain of Dr. Caligari. There's a rich tradition of going theatrical. It'll, I mean, the movie will probably still do fine because it's still cats. And the movie will also probably do fine because of the large furry community, which respect. But like it's, <laughs> it's still one of those... <laughs> things that like it just seems like it is a real reminder as a filmmaker that technology enables a whole palette of decisions we can make and it is wonderful that technology enables like a variety of decisions that we might not be able to make otherwise but there's still sort of we have a choice as filmmakers from a whole palette of things and just because cgi human cat hybrids are possible that does not necessarily mean that is the most effective way for the story to be what, engaging. What's the line, the Jeff Goldblum line in uh, Jurassic Park? <laughs> oh, Just the... because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> but what's also interesting, I'm actually, I actually might end up seeing cats in the theater at some point to test a hypothesis, which is I wonder if you're in the movie for an hour and you can settle into it and like it's a hot tub. Where, like, you know, when you first get yeah. into a hot tub, you're like, this is do I. Right. And then you settle in and you're like, ooh, this is perfect. I wonder. Cause I tried that with Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. And we walked out, my wife and I, after an hour because we could not get used to 120 frames. We just couldn't do it. But I was like, I want to see this theatrically to see if I can get into it. I wonder if 45 minutes into Cats, you're just like, ah, Cats. You know what? I'm kind of curious, to be honest. It may be hard for me to get out to see Cats, but... um. I'm kind of curious. I am definitely, uh, I'm definitely interested to see what that that movie experience is. And the reason I do think it'll do well, despite the reactions, is that it's got Taylor Swift and Jennifer Hudson and all kinds of people who draw people into theaters, and it also has legions of fans from the past who love the show and the music. So I have a feeling that just because the corner of the universe that reacts quickly to things 
on the internet thinks it's ridiculous doesn't mean that the population at large will reject it. Does that make sense? Also, it might be true that all publicity is good publicity. Like, literally, mm. if you ask me to name the top 10 movies of this summer, because I have a kid, I'm not truly as tuned as I normally be, but Sonic the Hedgehog and Cats would be on my list because of how much attention they've gotten on the internet. Both of them got <laughs> terribly negative attention on the internet, but they're both on my radar because of that, and that's something. That's totally going to count. Yeah. But I think we haven't talked about how this affects the, the, this and the Sonic the Hedgehog thing are kind of like two peas in a pod, really. Yeah. Although Sonic the Hedgehog was even more terrifying. But I'm going to use that as a segue to our <laughs> next story, which is actually sort of the number one movie that a lot of people have been waiting for on this this summer, which is opening this weekend, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Obviously, it's a Tarantino movie, so it's something that no film school readers are likely to be really excited about. Um, but it's also something we had a story about this week that was sort of interesting. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the background of uh, the Polanski-Tarantino conversation about this movie? We have a post up about Polanski contacting Tarantino. Apparently Polanski is even a character in this in this movie. I don't. We don't really know what, you know, Quentin Tarantino plays fast and loose with everything. So, you know, this could be a departure from the facts, but this is a story that covers... An historical incident uh, involving the Manson murders and the time surrounding it. Um, we know Sharon Tate is is a character in the movie. We don't know to what extent, but so Roman Polanski uh, checked in with Quentin Tarantino because he wanted to know, you know, what's uh, what's going on here. What are you doing? What's what's your version of the story? And I think uh, one of the reasons that we thought it was interesting to cover is because it it brings into question the idea of how do you write about real life trauma um especially when some of these people are still alive uh quentin tarantino being quentin tarantino was kind of like i'm gonna do what i'm gonna do and i don't care what anybody says and that's you know part of what defines him i think as an auteur is that he decided, hey, I'm going to make a World War II movie, but I'm going to change what happens in World War II <laughs> completely. And certainly Django Unchained wasn't a, uh, uh, it wasn't playing it safe. He never plays it safe. So I feel like. Well, except I would um, counter that there is one area where Quentin Tarantino plays things very safe and I really respect it. I was just, I've been watching a lot of Tarantino this year. I have no idea why. I don't know if it's related to being a new dad. I, it's one of those things that just lines up. But there is a obsession with logistics in Tarantino as a theme. He is so interested in the way physical things work in the world. Like, where do you stab an adrenaline shot in... Uh, is like a big part of Pulp Fiction. Like, how does that work? How far should I do it? All of those things. And then there's this big thing in, I mean, all of Hateful Eight is like these long sequences of like driving these stakes into the ground to make a rope line to the bathroom. This big conversation about like, well, do you need someone else to help you get out? Are you going to be able to drive the team alone without help? Like there is a, <laughs> among the many things that I'm noticing about Tarantino on this particular watch through of his work is that there is a certain amount to which even though sometimes his characters are exaggerated and sometimes his characters are clearly built on like, there's an interesting thing that happens with Tarantino characters where they are often these, like, big, robust archetype characters 
right? Like, that is a thing. But they are also dealing very solidly with, like, realistic logistics of life. Like that amazing scene where Christopher Waltz shoots the sheriff and then immediately, like, pulls out the thing and starts explaining why it's okay that he did it. And here's the rules that make it okay. Like, there's something about, like, the texture of the world that I think Tarantino finds very interesting. And so it is really interesting to think about that in terms of the Tate LaBianca murders and that whole period in Hollywood history and, like, the functioning of California in the 60s. It'll be it'll be very interesting. At a certain point in every artist's career, you reach the point where you're like, you know what, I just don't give a fuck what anybody thinks. I'm just going to make whatever I feel like making. And hopefully you're lucky enough to be Tarantino and you make whatever you feel like making and people love it. You, you got I remember I remember once when I, you know, anecdotally, I remember pitching something once uh, in a room with some executives when I was writing and they said after, you know, it was a little out there and they said like, you can't do that. And I remember we said, me and my writing partner, were like, yeah, well, like, look at what Quentin Tarantino just did. And they were like, Quentin Tarantino can do that. You can't do that. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> what I thought afterwards was, but how does Quentin, like, if you don't give people a chance to, like, Quentin Tarantino breaking rules is, yes, he's earned his right to break rules or to do what he wants to do. But I just think we, our, our content would all be more interesting if we gave a little more, if we gave a longer leash to creatives to explore um, and what Quentin Tarantino's response to this, just like, you know, he, I, it, the story is he ended up letting a mutual acquaintance with Polanski, a mutual acquaintance between the two of them, check out the script and report back that there was nothing particularly objectionable. So that sort of put it to, to rest. But Quentin Tarantino went ahead and did this and decided he was going to go ahead and do this his way no matter what. And that's the way he approaches a lot of very sensitive subjects. And I think that's to his credit. Because love it or hate it, he's an artist and he's exploring his craft, you know. You don't have to like the the result, but you certainly if you appreciate uh if you appreciate the expression and the form and the medium, then it's cool that there's this guy out there who is taking taking big swings. Now, as a person, there's a lot of questionable stuff. There's also the stories about Uma Thurman, and that sort of comes yeah. to play in this post as well. And the you know, we can't vouch for and with Polanski, there's certainly a lot of questions, right? But well, I was also going to say, that... like, I give a, sh- I, I don't give two shits what a child rapist thinks about this movie, but I do wonder, <laughs> like, are there, like, did, did I read something somewhere about Sharon Tate's family not wanting the movie to be made? Because that's a much different issue when you're dealing with the family of a crime victim and how they feel about the publicity of the story. I don't actually re- remember anything about that, but wasn't there some I, statement somewhere about I that? I don't. I don't know. There may be. I don't have any information about that in front of me. But that I agree. That's a whole other level. Because, yeah, with Polanski, it's sort of like, so, you know, he's a big name. He's a director. Um, he's a criminal. <laughs> like, And there's uh, some question as to whether or not it's even up to him and, and kind of like who cares what he thinks on some – right? Because it's not – he's not well, it's also fi- like not I, the, I, I, he's not going to come to fucking – like Los Angeles and get in a fist fight with Tarantino because he can't come to North America without going to jail. <laughs> like he's stuck in his Swiss chalet and his like, so like, you know, I, I think it's a fine fight to pick, but I do wonder, I mean, look, we haven't seen the movie. Nobody, very few people have seen the movie. We have no idea how the crimes are dealt with. And yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, I, the, the, the question I guess is the family of Sharon Tate. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, 
very excited to see it. And going back to the thing of like Quentin Tarantino is going to do what he's going to do. It makes it every time he makes a movie, I'm excited to get in the theater and watch that movie because I don't really know what he's up to. And so often nowadays you will find the major releases, not all things, but certainly in the major releases, you have a pretty good sense of where they're boxed in or hemmed in to certain content, right? But with Quentin Tarantino, we just know that he has he he's got elbow room it is interesting though because he has been on sort of a moral if there's been a theme to the last few movies it's been a lack of moral ambiguity like Hmm. uh you know there there is you know there's a theme in many you know you watch a lot of film noir and it's often like even the bad guys have a little good in them all of the good guys have a little bad but like in Django Django is good and Calvin Candy mm. is bad. Like there is a there's yes. you know, Inglorious Bastards is about killing Nazis. Like there yes. is a lack of moral ambiguity. And like what's interesting about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is like you have some of that. Like Charles Manson is unambiguously bad. So yes. I wonder if this is like the third in a trilogy. Because what I enjoyed about Hateful Eight was there was more complication there i mean you know i I, i'm I'm comfortable going on a limb to say charles manson is unambiguously (laughs) bad um so maybe this is sort of a return uh to the more pure uh you know the continuation of the lack of moral ambiguity all right there's a lot uh there's a lot there's a lot about once upon a time in hollywood and uh, i look forward to seeing a lot more about it after we've all had a chance to check it out and see what's there we will no doubt discuss it again. All right, our next piece of news, and it, it might have gone into tech news, but we're actually going to run it as a headline, uh, is Sony has launched the A7R Mark IV. All right, so a little bit of context about this. Sony basically invented the full-frame mirrorless market, right? Full-frame mirrorless, if you don't know. So everybody fell in love with the 5D Mark II in a lot of ways, like no film school 10 years ago and the 5D Mark II 10 years ago really blossomed together. Uh, the DSLR uh, Filmmaker's Guide was one of the first big things on no film school. A lot of you probably signed up for the mailing list originally 11 years ago in order to download that. Um, the 5D Mark II is a full-frame camera, which means it has a big, full sensor. It is 35-millimeter, still photography, full-frame size. So it's bigger than 35-millimeter motion picture size. But it's got this big mirror in it, which is like a leftover of the way in which we used to make movies. And the mirror isn't really useful in movie mode. In fact, when you switch over to movie mode, the mirror flops out of the way. But it makes the camera heavier, and it limits lens designs. And so Sony was like, why don't we just make a full-frame camera with no mirror in it, which was the A7 line, the Alpha line, and a huge hit. The A7S Mark II, huge hit with filmmakers, amazing in low light, amazing in all sorts of other ways, like this big, phenomenal um, hit. And what's weird about it is that, like, for like four years, no one ripped them off. Like, Canon and Nikon had full-frame sensors, but kept making their DSLRs, their digital single-lens reflex, the reflex being the mirror part. And a whole bunch of other people made mirrorless cameras, but they were all smaller sensors. GH5, smaller sensor, Fujifilm with their XT, smaller sensor. Like, in terms of full frame, the big sensor, which is great in low light, and mirrorless, Sony was it. And then last summer, Nikon and Canon, within weeks of each other, came out with full frame mirrorless, which is super exciting because that big sensor is going to be great in low light, but mirrorless, so lighter lenses and different lenses that can be closer to the sensor, pretty exciting. And then Panasonic just came out with one, the S1. 
And then in June, George, you were there for the reveal at Cinegear, the S1H, which is like the cinema-focused one, which is going to be a monster. It's like 6K. It's going to be great. Um, and all of the reviews on that, uh, the Panasonic S1, are, are really excited about that camera platform. And Sony's not sleeping. They came out with the A7 III like two years ago, and it's been a big hit. But like, there was not never an A7 S3. And you would ask Sony about it, and they'd be like, the A7 III is so good, we're not really going to do an A7 S3. And we all kind of thought they were lying. Because the A7S2 had been such a huge hit with filmmakers, we kind of assumed they just would. And in fact, some of you might have noticed our article on the A7R3, the the URL for it says A7S3 Mark II, because I the, all of the rumors were the announcement this week was going to be A7S3 Mark II. <laughs> so I made that the headline initially. Um, and, and I, as with many people, were surprised when they made their announcement. And it wasn't an A7S3 II, it was the A7 are four so like there's the plain old a7 right the mark ii and mark three and now them and uh there's no mark four yet but i'm sure there will be and then the step up to the r is for resolution which is for like the stills photo people and then the s was for the cinema people a7s2 all sorts of cinema features but what's weird about the a7r4 is first off we've now gone to revision four on something without ever getting an a7s3 we might still get an A7S3, but it's really looking unlikely at this point. And there's some, like, video features in there that are actually kind of interesting. But it doesn't feel like a... Um, Cinema it, camera, right? Well, it's it's not... If you own a market for, like, four years, you have this market entirely to yourself. And you're, like, the king of this market. You invented this market. And then Nikon and Canon show up and try and take some of your market share. You kind of, I was kind of expecting a full-on gang movie like SmackDown. I was kind of <laughs> expecting like a, oh, you guys think you can come in on the full-frame mirrorless turf? We'll go fuck yourselves. It's not that it wasn't that, but it didn't feel like the SmackDown I was kind of hoping it would be. Personally. Well, let me ask, like, my questions can maybe bring, like... You know, because I'm less informed about all the various different models, but and what they bring each separately, and I'm curious to know that. But it, because it's the R and not the S, are people disappointed or expecting the S? Like, is that the thing that? Well, but so here's the thing: so people, there's never been an S three. The last S was the S two, and so now the R three came out, and now we're at R four, and. They never even made an S3. So the the suspicion, the sort of general feeling is Sony seems to think that the plain old A7 III is good enough for filmmakers and that there's no film specific, because this shoots 4K, right? Um, and they had like a really nice little video demo moment where uh, they did eye detect autofocus in video mode, which is a feature filmmakers want. Um, we're all desperate for. I mean, eye detect autofocus is one of those things that when you see still photographers use it and it works, it's just amazing. Like a little dot yeah. sits on a person's eye and then they move around and they stay in focus. And like, you know, face detect autofocus is great, but eye detect autofocus is amazing. And they showed a demo of eye detect autofocus. Now that demo of eye detect autofocus felt really 
unprepared. They were like, we only have a five second clip to show you. And they, you know, the opening thing was like this 30 second sizzle reel of all these beautiful shots. And then they were like, and we have eye detect autofocus. And they cut to one shot with it. And it didn't feel particularly polished. And I was like, that's definitely a feature you only got working a week ago, but you wanted to stick into the presentation. <laughs> that wasn't a feature right. working a month ago where you could shoot 10 demos and cut them all together. Um, it didn't feel very, like, it felt really rushed, that that one piece of the presentation. Um, but the other thing is just sort of we were expecting, I think, a little bit more of a... Something. I think it. I think it. Re, I think Sony really does feel like they don't owe us an A7S3 or an A7S4. Like I feel like they're thinking you can get enough of the features you want out of the A7 III, and now the A7R4. This is going to give you all the the performance you're looking for. We don't need to give you the more video focused features. There was even another sort of really nerdy, cool thing they did. So you know. Obviously, you don't want to have to use the mic on your camera. You want to use dual system sound with a shotgun mic really close to the actor. But most of us do always have a mic on the camera just as backup. You never know when the boom mic might cut out for a second or you're running around on a dock thing and like the on-camera mic just gets the audio. It's the backup, but sometimes it's the backup you need. So most of us out there shooting with these small little cameras have an on-camera mic of some sort for whatever reason. And they came out with a particularly cool feature, which is a digital audio input. And so what that basically means is usually microphones are all analog, right? There's sound waves going through the air and the microphone is converting those sound waves into an audio signal. And that's an analog signal that runs into the camera in analog. And then inside the camera, there's a digital audio converter. But you got to remember, these cameras are doing like 9 billion other things and audio is not that important to them. So the, the preamps and the digital audio converter is never that good in these cameras. Um, there's a lot of reasons why audio is not great in this camera. So this is one of them. And Sony, instead of like working on improving all of that inside the camera, they had a really brilliant insight to be like, what if we just give you a digital audio input? And then in the microphone, which is a tool you're buying specifically for audio quality and is external to the camera body. So we don't have to like figure out how to jam it inside the camera body somewhere. It is now they put the digital audio converter in the microphone which I thought was a really smart solution. So now when you want better audio, when you, but like that's also telling us that this is a camera they're preparing for filmmakers. Because if it's just for still photographers, still photographers don't care about audio quality, right? If they're using the audio at all, right. it's like for voice memos that are like, oh, I shot this on that day. So the fact that right. there's the digital audio input really tells us they're thinking of this is ready for filmmakers. The fact that they put the work into the designing this whole system really makes me feel like they're thinking... Between this and the eye focus, they're thinking filmmakers are going to like this. And don't get me wrong, we do. But, like, compared to the S1H from Panasonic, it certainly doesn't seem comparable to the S1H from Panasonic, from where I sit. I'm more excited about that camera than I am the A7S, the A7R4. And that's what's sort of interesting about this announcement, is it just feels like one of those things where Sony was so far ahead... And it's inevitable. You can't stay that far ahead forever. Other people are going to catch up. Um, and I think that was sort of the interesting thing there. I do honestly really think the digital audio thing is kind of really fascinating. Um, and I'm hoping to start seeing more other cameras have a digital interface. Um, because I think it will open up 
the ability to have better sort of exterior audio. It's almost always going to be a proprietary thing, I think, where it'll be like, you need the Panasonic mic with the Panasonic camera um, for a digital audio interface. I doubt it'll be like an open protocol. Although, who knows? Audio people, feel free to correct me on Twitter. Yeah, I was going to say, were you kind of hoping, it sounds like like part of the expectation or the hope would have been that these competitors would force one another to make you force you into a difficult decision or force owner operators into a more difficult decision about purchasing just because they'd be offering products with you know features that competed but what you're saying is it doesn't feel like there's a new dynamic entry into the marketplace with this yeah it doesn't i feel like sony is still right where they were with this and i was hoping they were going to stretch us a little further look they invented the category they can rest for a minute right but um <laughs> i don't know it'll be it'll be really interesting when it's out in the field and we see how that i detect autofocus works because the competition for autofocus is really the place where that this is the fiercest that is the fiercest area of competition in this world right now because as the sensor gets bigger, your depth of field gets smaller. And so if you're used to running around with a little micro four-thirds camera and pulling your own focus and being able to survive, bumping up to that full frame and then working in low light, autofocus becomes very important. And 10 years ago, autofocus was something we would never use because it was always terrible. But it's starting to get really good. And if that eye detect fo- autofocus is a really useful tool... Maybe that one feature alone is going to be enough, but we didn't see enough in that demo to know. Um, All right, after the ad break, we'll be back with tech news. This episode is brought to you by Shotlister, the only professional shot listing and scheduling app. Paper shot lists suck. When something inevitably goes wrong on set, you're left to scribble all over your perfect plan, guessing if you'll be able to make your day. But with the Shotlister, you can schedule your film on a shot-by-shot and minute-by-minute basis. And then when things change on set, you can simply update the shooting schedule on the app and Shotlister automatically does the math for you so you know exactly how you're doing. And its crew sync feature means you can keep the whole crew up to date. Shotlister is designed by filmmakers for filmmakers and is available on macOS, iOS, and Android. Check it out at shotlister.com. As a special bonus for listening to the No Film School podcast, Shotlister is giving away 50 free downloads every month. Just email nofilmschool at shotlister.com for your free copy. All right. Hey, everybody. Tech news this week. I've got one big story. And then if you want more stories, you can always check out the Tech News Only podcast, Week in Film Tech. The big story this week in tech news is Aperture. If you don't know Aperture, I mean, you guys know Aperture. We cover a lot of their lights. Aperture make affordable LED lights, and they just came out with the 300D Mark II. We saw it at NAB, but now it's released in shipping. And interestingly, this article had even more traffic. They've come out with a, uh, I'm going to call it a China ball. It's a ball-shaped light lantern um, attachment for $89 that'll work with any of your Bowens mount lights, which is the Aperture 120D and um, a bunch of other lights the 300d and that article actually also did really huge so we want to talk about that too so what's the big deal with these particular aperture units so there's a couple things going on first off aperture are lights that a lot of people are are within the realm of affordability you look at something like a sky panel and sky panels are great because they're doing rgb and they're they're pre-programmable and all of that great stuff but most of us Sky panels are like a rental-only item. There's a whole bunch of other people competing in sort of the RGB space, but Aperture has done a very good job of, of 
making design decisions that put some of these lights within the reach of affordability for sort of indie filmmakers. The 120D and the 300D units are really popular because they are focused on, they've, they're not worried about RGB. They're not even worried about bicolor. They're just worried about punch. They really want to go in and replace like the 650 and the 1K lights that we used to have in like a 3K area light kit. They really want to be the like LED equivalent of like throw them in a bag and do an interview with them and like do everything. You can maybe own them kind of lights. Um, and they're interesting for that. The 120D came out last year, the three, uh, Mark II. The 300D came out two years ago and now this is the revision. And they're really focusing on that. You can plug them in with two V-mount batteries, go out in a park, and it's going to be your supplemental fill light. It's going to add in something like that. And there's a whole bunch of interesting revisions in the Mark II. So, for instance, they completely redesigned the sort of ballast plate. One thing we didn't like with the original was it was two pieces, a battery plate and a ballast. Now it's one piece, and the batteries mount to either side, so it's more balanced when it's sitting on the ground. Now you can run it off just one battery, only at half power. Um, it, it also is part of their big... Cedius um, mesh network. So uh, like if you want to control your lights with an app, usually you have to be close to all the lights, but now all their lights are going to talk to each other. So if you're like 20 feet from one light and then it's 20 feet from the next light and then there's another light 20 feet on, the lights will talk to each other. So even if your phone is too far from the furthest light, as long as none of the lights are too far from each other, they'll all be able to be controlled by the app. That's super cool. They're on their own little. Uh, they're on their own little network. I thought yeah. that that blows me away. I know it's the mesh Skynet network thing. Really. Oh my god! It's, I haven't tested Skynet it. for lights. I am desperate to us. test it because if it works, <laughs> holy shit, snacks! Because I'm already addicted to app control of lights. That's like my favorite thing now. I've been testing the digital Sputnik Voyager, and as much as I like giving digital Sputnik a hard time because it took two years for them to ship after their Kickstarter. The cool, like you can play a video on their LED lights. It's amazing. Um, but you, you get... let me ask you a question related to this from your own as you as a cinematographer. When you're using, how many apps do you have to have like on your devices? I'm for going all to, the different. So I'm going to keep saying this until someone helps me do this. I want to have one app and have it work with every light. And if you are an app developer, team up with me and we will do this. And I guarantee you every light company will support us because every time I talk to the light companies, they're like, oh, I hate having to have an app because you have to pay for developers. You have to keep updating it and people never buy the app. Um, there is sort of a single app that will work with DMX. It's a $100 app that will control DMX. But the thing is, is a lot of these lights, they're all using individual Bluetooth protocols and stuff. So, like, there's a whole folder yeah. of just LED control apps. There's the digital Sputnik and Hive, which I use a lot. And um, I haven't actually installed the Aperture unit yet because I haven't uh, done a review of one of the newer ones. And then um, there's a few others. Um, I was just testing some NAND lights. Their app is terrible. I'm going to talk about how terrible their app is in the review. I like the lights. The app needs a major revision. So when you're on set, uh, would you say you've got like, you know, maybe it's how, however many people in your crew, you've got your gaffer, say, and maybe a couple other technicians. Who would you have, like electrics, who would you have running the app, the lights on their device? So usually it'll be the gaffer on a smaller shoot. So the DP is not going to be pulling out their iPad all the time. A lot of times it <laughs> will make, be... That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times it'll be the gaffer. On a bigger show, I'm going to guess it's the best. Um, mm. But I haven't actually worked on a show big enough where it would have been the best since this whole app world came around. 
I, I'm assuming that's more like best electric kind of territory. But on the little kind of things that I end up working on, that would be the gaffer. The gaffer would have an iPad or the gaffer would have like the gaffer's control, that little box. The problem we're dealing with in the app universe is that there's DMX, which is a cabled solution, which everything supports and works really well. And then there's wireless DMX, but wireless DMX does not work on the same frequency bandwidth as Wi-Fi. So mm. if I want, like there's a great app, Luminaire, $100 app. Everybody loves it. We just ran a video about pre-visiting on a music video where they did this amazing thing, rigging up all these lights on a car, running off this one app. It's a great thing, but I can't use an iPad to control the lights directly. I have to use the iPad to go to a DMX wireless box, which is like $200, and then that can control all of the lights because DMX wireless is a different frequency than the Wi-Fi and the iPad. In an iPad, you have Wi-Fi and you have Bluetooth, and a lot of these lights are controllable Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, but it's all different protocols. So what would really need to happen is someone would have to build an app that was so good, and they'd have to say, all right, we're going to work with every lighting company, work with us, and we're going to control all your units, and we're going to play with everybody, and that would be super exciting, and we would all be really happy about that. However, we would also have to be willing to pay for that app, for that app to happen. Because like right now, I, you buy a Hive light, it comes with the app for right. free. You buy an Aperture light, it comes with the app for free. You buy a digital Sputnik light, you buy the hardware, and the software comes for free. And that's tricky to convince people to pay for software. I desperately want this app to exist, but I think it's an uphill battle, to be honest. Like, hmm. people are more comfortable paying for hardware than they are for software. The app would have to be phenomenal. I think to really take off. Um, I desperately want it to happen, but I don't know that it will. So it feels like it's kind of like a company that's trying to make money. Your proposed software is like the universal remote thing where the individual companies are like, yeah, we'll just incorporate more functionality into our remote that comes with our device rather than saying like, here's this universal remote that will work with all your devices. Right? Yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit of that in there. I think there's also a little bit of like, you know, I think back to like Blackmagic a little bit where Blackmagic gives away Resolve because they sell you hardware like the Blackmagic Intensity and the Blackmagic DNXIO and all of that hardware because it's just easier to talk people into buying things than buying software. However, there is that $100 app that people that are making a living and they do industrial lighting and all sorts of stuff and... I know that all the lighting companies would support it because I'm sure they are all tired of developing lights because when I talk to them, it seems like their least favorite part of the job. They want to make lights, not build apps. So somebody wants mm, to build apps, yeah. I think there is a business model here. Um, so that's all the stuff in the 300D Mark II. But what's also cool is at the same time, they're shipping this $89 softbox lantern. And why this is exciting is because the softbox is like one of the you know, the soft globe, the, the soft lantern is one of the traditions of indie film, right? It's one of the first things you do. You're a, you're a young wannabe filmmaker, young wannabe DP. You go to the hardware store, you buy a couple China balls, you get a ceramic socket so you can put a 250-watt bulb in there and you can all of a sudden light a tabletop scene where you pop it up above and you put a little duvetine on the back so light's not on the wall and it's like one of the beginning things of filmmaking. But the problem is, is they're like really not durable. Like two shoots in, they've been torn up in your... Uh, in the trunk of your car or, you know, you're taking them down and they get torn. They're just not a robust thing. There have been more robust solutions for a while, like big silk things with metal frames, but they've been really expensive. Um, and it's really nice to be like, oh, all right, $89. And it has like a 
a Velcro nylon skirt so you can like keep the light off the back wall and you can sort of make it a little more directional like this. You know, if you watch a lot of behind the scenes movies, uh, behind the scenes videos for walk and talks, it's really common. Like you'll see a walk and talk with like two characters in a steady cam, and they're like doing a night exterior walk and talk. And then there'll be someone holding like a China ball on a C-stand arm up above to just fill them in gently a little bit. Right. It's not a key. It's not like meant to make you see everything, but obviously you've got to run a nice long cable to that. But this combo, this like 300D Mark II with, you can put the V-mount thing, you know, two V-mount batteries in a backpack and you put the China ball globe on it and it's really lightweight. You put it out on the end of a China ball head and all of a sudden you can do those like night exterior walk and talks um, in a really like robust, repeatable, controllable way. Uh, affordably. And I think that's sort of like interesting and exciting. And I suspect that's why the Lantern article did so well is I think this is something that people have been sort of excited that it was going to be coming out, whether you use Aperture Lights or if you use another brand light that is Bowen's adaptable, many lighting companies use that Bowen's mount. Um, I think it is a nice combination of price points um, and it will be sort of exciting to start seeing them out in the field when they are available. All right, everybody. So that is a whole lot for this week. We've been recording for 50 minutes, but this has been this week's No Film School podcast. I'm Charles Hain. You can find me on Twitter at Charles Hain. You can also listen to a whole podcast just of tech news at weekinfilmtech.com, which is like my tech news, but I go on for even longer and nerdier shit. Um, you can check out all of my articles on No Film School, including my articles this week on the Aperture products that just came out. And you'll hear my thoughts on I'm actually, despite having kids, going to get to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Thank, thank you to my wife for making that happen for me this weekend. So you'll have my actual thoughts on that movie next week. I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief again of No Film School. At George Edelman, you can read all the content that we've discussed and much more on nofilmschool.com. I'm also going to see uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood this weekend. I'm really excited. Oh my God, this um, is like the first so. time that both dads get to see. I mean, occasionally <laughs> this does feel like the dad cast, um, yeah. the No Dad School podcast. And uh, so no yeah, we, we will, I, I inevitably, we will get to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood next week. Um, all right, have fun making movies this weekend, guys. See everybody next week. Bye.